Our scripture text this morning for this Easter Sunday comes from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 49. And Paul says, But some of you will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly of, an, of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is, imp- is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual first that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. And as the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. And as the man of heaven, so also are those of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. The word of the Lord. Lord, we ask you meet us this morning um, as we gather to reflect on the meaning of the resurrection. And as we gather around a text of Paul's, which is quite difficult, um, but evocative (laughs) of the glory of resurrection. So be with us this morning and meet us uh, wherever we find ourselves, whether like Thomas in places of doubt or perhaps in places of despair or perhaps uh, in apathy, uh, knowing that it's Easter morning and we should feel something, we should feel thankful and hopeful, but we're struggling. So we pray by your spirit that you enliven us this morning by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. If there's one thing um, from our series from the past uh, 12 weeks now about the image of God that I want you to take away, it is, it is this. It is the importance of the body for what it means to be human. It is important to the body. To be created in the image of God is to be an embodied creature. Now, uh, this might seem so obvious to not even need mentioning, uh, right? Nobody's disagreeing that humans have bodies, right? I mean, even you know, atheists and Buddhists and Hindus and Christians all agree that we have bodies, right? And moreover, if we're talking about the image of God as that which distinguishes us from the rest of creation and animal life, 
I mean, all other animals have bodies, so what's distinct about the human as a body? Um, the short answer is this, is that human beings are the only creatures in all creation that seek to escape their bodies constantly. We're the only creatures in all creation that are, that are, that are often living in contradiction to our bodies. We're the only creatures that struggle to be free of the limits that our bodies impose upon us. You know, when we think about the image of God, we often traditionally think of all those immaterial things that make humans distinct, right? Reason, freedom, power, the essence of the soul or the spirit. Um, these things are true of human beings, and they really do distinguish us from creation. But the root of almost all the distortions and misunderstandings of human nature are misunderstandings of the body. And this is not a particularly modern problem. It's an ancient one as well. And we see that in our text here. I've just given you a little slice of this Pauline passage, a long chapter in resurrection. But Paul is writing here to the Corinthians, and they are a congregation with lots of body problems. <laughs> they have lots of body problems. Uh, they were kind of a problem child, if you will, um, of Paul. Uh, on the one hand, they're incredibly otherworldly and seemingly out of touch. On the other hand, they're incredibly worldly and fleshly. They're divisive. They, um, they're constantly misunderstanding the relationship between the sexes of male and female. They have all kinds of sexual problems. Uh, they have a lot of problem with Paul and his authority. They're very class conscious. They're, they're always fighting within each other for rank and social recognition. Their, their worship is just completely out of control and disordered. They have all kinds of problems. And one of the problems is they have a problem with the resurrection. They, they're really skeptical <laughs> about the resurrection. The very end of Paul's letter, which is chapter 15, Paul devotes a very long discussion of resurrection. And it's not just one other item and a long list of problems that he's addressing. There's a way that he, he waits to the end of his letter uh, because a misunderstanding of the body and a misunderstanding of the resurrection is at the ground floor and root of all these other problems that the Corinthians are having. And so Paul gives a lot of time um, to helping them understand this because, because they misunderstand the nature of the body, they misunderstand the Christian life. And so Paul is trying to correct that by reflecting on the meaning of the resurrection for them. And he is emphatic that the resurrection of the body from the dead is at the heart and center of the Christian faith. It's at the heart and center of the Christian faith. It's not as a little side thing. It's at the heart and center. Paul says in another part of this chapter, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have died or fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if, Christ is, and, if Christ, and if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are a people most to be pitied. Now, without fail, it seems every year, this is probably the tenth year I've preached on the resurrection and Easter. Not only ten times have I preached on the resurrection, but uh, without fail, it seems that the sermons I preach on resurrection on Easter are always the hardest ones. 
They're the hardest ones for me. Um, and it's not because the theme of resurrection is unpopular or offensive to people, quite to the contrary. But they're really hard because the resurrection is conceptually really difficult. Unless, that is, you just sort of stay on the surface level and you just say, well, resurrection is what happens when we die. Someday we're going to be resurrected. And... But if you're trying to think about resurrection the way that Paul wants you to think about resurrection, he, he wants you to think about it here and now. Not as just a truth off in the future, but as something that begins to sort of penetrate, if you will, life here. And one of the reasons why resurrection is so hard conceptually is because we don't, we don't really have any categories for it. We don't really have experiences at hand or any analogies and say, well, it's like this and, you know, that we can connect, right, to where it makes sense. And so I always risk, and I'm doubly in risk of this as a kind of a academic type of pastor to just, um, to, to be overly complicated and, um, but, Paul wants us to know that resurrection isn't just something off in the future. It's not just something we talk about one Sunday a year or something that comes up at funerals. Paul wants us to understand that resurrection has to shape all of our existence as Christians every day of our lives. And, and he's trying to do this with this text. And Now, at the risk of pushing you to think too hard on Easter Sunday, let me, let me put it this way. Let me... Ch- let me, let me identify why I think it's so hard, is that the resurrection of the body is challenging to grasp because it belongs to a new cosmology. It belongs to a new cosmology. It belongs to the cosmology of the, old, of the new creation. And as people who still belong to the old cosmology of the old creation, it's just really hard for us to imagine what kind of bodies Paul is talking about here. Now, you might be wondering, like, okay, well, what do you mean by cosmology? I'm glad you asked. Um, cosmology has to do with the nature of the universe as a whole, right? When you think about the cosmos, we're talking about subatomic particles and quarks and neutrons all the way up to galaxies and black holes and stars and the Milky Way and everything in between. Cosmology is the nature of reality as a whole and the kinds of ways that we orient ourselves about what is real. That's what I mean by cosmology. It's an overarching framework. And usually we don't think about it very much. But Paul is very much thinking in terms of cosmology. And, you know, when you read this text and you hear it, and you're like, why is he talking about fish and birds and, and, and heavenly bodies and earthly bodies and the glory of one and the flesh is like this and not like that of these? Paul's thinking cosmologically. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to say, listen, the resurrection body fits within a different cosmology. It fits. It's not just like this little thing we pull out. It, it's part of a whole frame. Um, and so comprehending resurrection requires a whole new cosmology. Now, I don't have time to give you a whole cosmology this morning. You're probably thankful for that. But let me, let me try to, I know this is very abstract, so let me try to bring it, make it more graspable. One of the ways you can think about cosmology is in terms of like a, an operating system on a computer. Uh, you know, we, you, two basic operating systems for most of our devices. You know, you have Mac and you have a PC or Windows based. And um, it used to be the case in, a number of years ago that if you had an, an application like Microsoft Word, 
you couldn't run it on the Apple device. The platform didn't support it, didn't recognize it, right? Now that's changed. Well, and the same, I don't know any good app for Apple things because I never, you know. But uh, now they're, they're compatible, but there's a sense in which this is the analogy, right? Like a cosmology is like an operating system. And the applications are the things that we can run. The, the operating helps make sense of what you're doing here. And the problem with the resurrection of the body that the Corinthians were having is that they didn't have an operating system that could run that application. <laughs> Their cosmology, if you will, could not make sense of the resurrection. You could say they were still operating with a pagan operating system. They still had a pagan cosmology. And in that cosmology, that operating system, the body was inferior. The body was incidental. The body was not an object of God's salvation and concern. That was part of their operating system. And I think we have very similar problems, right? <clears throat> now, I've been talking about the resurrection of the body and of Jesus as if it were an application that requires the right operating system. But more properly speaking, Jesus' resurrection from the dead creates a whole new operating system. It creates a whole new cosmology. That's what Paul's trying to get at here. That's why this text is so difficult. The resurrection is so radical because what it does is it, it, it introduces us to a cosmos and a world that we have not seen or tasted yet, but we have a sense of. The world, after the resurrection of Jesus, permanently changes. It permanently changes. Jesus' death on the cross is a world-changing event. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is a cosmos-changing event. There's something that breaks open, right? Even here in Matthew's account of the resurrection, that there was an earthquake that shook the earth at his resurrection, associated with the coming of one of the angels. Something breaks open. Something has changed in the, in the cosmos. And these changes, though, still for us are, are imperceptible. We, we don't really see them. But every person that sees a resurrected Jesus undergoes a life-changing experience and transformation. Their vision is changed. They cannot see the same way, right? This is the meaning of resurrection faith. Resurrection faith, which is Christian faith, is to have a transformed vision of the world and our place in it. I just want to remind you a little bit of that old cosmos, that old creation. It was created good. It still is good. But because of sin, it is under the curse, which means it's been put in bondage. And it's ruled not by life and glory, but by corruption and death. Again, it has a kind of malware that always sends everything towards death. When Jesus, is, when Jesus is, um, becomes a man and he goes to the cross and dies, he undergoes the full experience of old creation that dooms all things to death. And when he dies, he goes to the place of death, hell, right? Hell is the cosmological center of death. And Jesus goes there, and he's there for three days. So there's no question that he has really died. He has gone to the heart but hell and death cannot keep him, and he is resurrected. 
and he breaks free of the old creation's death grip, and he bursts through the thick concrete ceiling and wall that separates the living and the dead, and he comes to life. But he comes back to life not simply as a resuscitated corpse. He comes with a glorified body. And what Paul calls Jesus, he describes him as the first fruits. Jesus is the beginning of a new world order, a new cosmos, a new operating system. Christ, as Paul says, has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by death, man came, for as by a man came death, by man also comes a resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. And the marvel and the mystery of the resurrection is this, is that a little piece, a little piece of new creation is found to be mingling and walking about in the old creation. And it's not just a little piece. You could think of Jesus as <clears throat> the basis of the new creation, but, you know, all the stories of resurrection you get at the end of the Gospels, you know, just Jesus is very elusive. Like, he's there a minute, and then he's not. People recognize him, they don't. And there's a way that, that, you know, what's going on here? Why aren't people recognize him? I think it's related precisely to this idea, is that he, it's not that he has an immaterial body, and he's, or he's a ghost. No, but he's, he has a new creation body. <laughs> he has a new creation body, and the old creation cannot comprehend the new creation. And the only way the old creation can comprehend the new creation is by the eyes of faith. Resurrection faith. And this brings us back to the meaning of the body in the resurrection. See, when the Corinthians questioned the resurrection, they made two mistakes. The first mistake is that they denied the central goodness of the body. They, they just saw the body as inferior. It wasn't important, not for my spiritual life. You know, the body, and to use our language, isn't the real me, right? Uh, the real me is sort of my will or the, some, something hidden in essence within myself. Uh, in the ancient world, the body was often seen as a kind of prison house, that, that someday we die and we're released and we're liberated from the body and we ascend upwards to God and we're united in the divine essence. So, like, why would you want to put and pin all of your hope in the resurrection of the body? Right? The body's a problem, right? Now, I, I think this error persists today, but I, you know, I refer you back to earlier sermons for the application of it. <clears throat> But the thing I want to draw your attention to here is that Jesus' resurrection is an unqualified affirmation of the goodness of the body and God's commitment to redeeming our bodies. You could say that Jesus and his resurrected body is like the cornerstone of the new creation. It's like, imagine that his body is like a Lego block. The Lego block in which all these other Lego blocks are going to be built and fashioned. That's the resurrection body of Jesus. New creation will be stuff like his body, glorified. And what that means is that resurrection is not an escape from the world. Salvation is not an escape from this world. It is not God abandoning creation. Resurrection is the restoration and the renovation of this world. And it's not just the renovation of our bodies and, our, and, and it's these sort of separate objects. It's the the human body doesn't make sense without creation. Because <laughs> our bodies were designed and fitted for creation. 
And so when God resurrects the body, it's just the first fruits of all of creation that he will renew. And see, when we, we miss this truth, when we, we tend to be like the Corinthians and don't see the, the body and its goodness, what ends up happening is we, 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 we become like the Corinthians that we have this hyper-spirituality. We become hyper-spiritual, or the way that uh, Walker Percy liked to talk about it in his, his novels, where he identifies this kind of secular Gnosticism. He calls it angelism, right? Angelism. It's like, ah, you know, these are the people who are so, you know, otherworldly that they're no uh, earthly good, right? There's so many ways we do this, where we live away from our bodies, but the body is good and the Lord resurrects it. This brings us to the second mistake that the Corinthians make. And the second mistake is moves in the opposite direction. So if the first mistake takes us towards being hyper-spiritual and angelistic, the second mistake is, is that we, we see the body as simply um, the same old body, right? What will re- be resurrected is this body, the one I have right now. Um, and what that, what that is, is, is sort of the sense that, you know, resurrection is just the resuscitation of corpses. This is what Paul is calling out and objecting to. And I, I think, let me, let me spell that out, how that gets applied. You know, um, this, is, this happens when we think about the resurrection as just the resuscitation of, of my body as it is. It's just, this leads us towards worldliness. It, it tends to say, well, resurrection is just my best life now and for eternity. And I think that's how often we, when we're very worldly in our faith, which is always a temptation, we kind of just imagine the best of our life here, but just going on in perpetuity. And all resurrection is God comes and he just extends our life. And Paul's like, no, that's not it. See, that's a resuscitated corpse. That's like a glorified zombie body, right? Paul says, no, there's something, this is a fail to see that the old creation needs to die before new creation can happen. Death is necessary for transformation. So Paul says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. What Paul is describing here is a tension in the Christian life that our bodies are sort of in-between bodies, that our bodies, um, in a sense, are a link between two ages, the old age and the new age. The old age is one of corruption and death, and the new age is one of life and glory. And we're sort of, our bodies are caught, if you will. There's a, a sense of continuity and discontinuity. The continuity is that it's this same body, my body right here, that will be that which is continuous in new creation. But the discontinuity is this, is it's not going to quite be this body as it exists. And I think the metaphor he uses that's very, very helpful is he uses this imagery of of a seed and a kernel that goes into the ground and then grows up and becomes a plant. I like to think of it as the difference between a bulb and a bloom. We have these tulips here. Um, If you see a tulip bulb, it looks like an onion. It's just this brown thing. 
And if you've never seen a flower or a tulip and you look at that bulb, there's no way that your imagination is going to go to this, right? And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, you think of, you think the bulb. Oh, I, I want to hold on to the bulb. The bulb is great. Let the bulb exist for eternity. And what Paul is saying is, no, it's a kernel. It's a bulb. Put it in the ground. And when it comes up on the other side, it's going to be a bloom. Just because you can't imagine the bloom doesn't mean it won't be true. See, you see with that bulb, there is something continuous. The bulb becomes a bloom. And it is the same with the body. Our bodies are like that bulb. It's good, but it has to be buried. And to be buried, it means it has to die. But someday it would be a bloom. And see, for various reasons, we resist this. We, we don't like the idea. We get so attached to the bulb, but we're also afraid of burying it. We're afraid of the bulb being buried. But Paul wants us to know, you don't have anything to be afraid of. Don't fear death. And what's on the other side is something far more glorious than you could possibly imagine. Rarely do we get an actual taste of what resurrection life will someday be like. But sometimes, like a shaft of light, right, that shines through the, the old slats of a barn, there's just get this little glimpse of light. And I caught such a glimpse of that resurrection light this past week at a funeral for a dear old saint named Scott Koenigs. Uh, Scott was 86 years old. Uh, he's somebody that I got to know uh, pretty well when we were part of the Brookfield Christian Reformed Church. And Scott was always a big supporter of our church plant in the beginning. And uh, at that funeral service, one of his grandsons read a letter that Scott had written 22 years earlier. Then uh, he'd written it to his children. And the occasion of the letter was associated with having, him having a couple heart surgeries that were really major. And um, so he wrote this letter describing a spiritual experience that he had had um, after, during the midst of going through these surgeries. And I, his son, Scott, had, had shared it with me and uh, gave me permission to share it, a, a section of that from you with you. This is from 2000. <clears throat> so he's, he's talking about a surgery. He said, now I went to my first surgery completely at ease and, and worry-free as I knew that many prayers were being offered in my behalf. Of the eight nights spent in the hospital, the only good night of sleep was the night prior to surgery. I received no drugs of any kind that evening, so I know that this was a natural sleep. It was during the surgery that I found myself in this vast, empty void with nothing but the flat, smooth surface that I was resting on. In this void, I could feel the presence of the Holy Spirit, and he had the prayers and the petitions with him. And as he passed through, he would proclaim in a loud voice, a loud, joyous voice, yes! Yes, not just a yes to give approval, but said in a way that was to agree with an approval being given and given honor to the one who grants these petitions. 
sort of like you might do when your favorite team scores the winning point in the last seconds of a game. I kept thinking of the reality of this experience as it was totally lacking in dream characteristics. While dreams have a certain abstract quality, this was something I was part of, something I was experiencing, and it was wonderful. From it all, I have a renewed and fresh idea of the value of prayer and the hope it will encourage you, along with me, to use this most powerful blessing. Scott interpreted his experience as a testimony to the power of prayer, which for sure it is. But when I heard this shared, it also to me became clear that he had experienced just a little taste of the resurrection on that operating table, a premonition. Because at the resurrection, brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit will pass through us and he will proclaim in a loud, joyous voice, yes, yes. But, sort of like you might do when your favorite team wins, scores the winning point in the last seconds of the game. Friends, resurrection is God's unqualified, unmitigated, unreserved, yes. Yes to you, to your body. And it is also a victory shout. It is a victory shout over death and its grip. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Alleluia, Christ is risen. Amen. Father, we give you thanks for your yes. Your yes in Jesus Christ. Your yes in the continued presence of your spirit in our lives. I pray that we would know that, yes, deep in our hearts this morning. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.